News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Interesting event going on in New York City over the next couple of days. It is a two-day event called the Global Citizen Conference, and it's supposed to be all about the most urgent issues facing humanity and our planet. Now, Prime Minister Trudeau is attending, even while his government is being criticized for cutting things like foreign aid spending and maybe not even focusing enough on international relations like what we saw happen with our NATO relationships. So let's find out more about this. Neetu Garchar, our global national reporter and anchor, is in New York covering this event and joins us with the latest. Good morning, Neetu. Hi, Simi. So how are the international development groups here in Canada reacting to all this? Yeah, well, Sydney, this is the second Global Citizen Now conference. It started last year with a goal of ending extreme poverty with events at different venues in the city over the course of two days. And some say they're surprised the Prime Minister has flown here to New York City for such a high-profile conference after what some in Canada's aid sector called a disappointing budget last month. They called for a 15% drop in aid funding to some of the poorest countries in the world compared to budget 2022. The Prime Minister's office says Trudeau is attending this conference to, quote, champion women's rights and a path forward for Canada and the world, which leaves no one behind. But when you talk to those like Louis Boulanger, he's a former Liberal staffer who now advocates for Canadian humanitarian groups, They say that mandate by the PMO for this trip is a clear contradiction. Hmm. Okay, so this sounds like a bit of a star-studded event here. What exactly is the Prime Minister doing there? Like, what's he supposed to do to participate? Yeah, so Trudeau has actually been promoted by Global Citizen as one of the key prominent figures at the summit. He's set to deliver a keynote speech on Friday. Today, he's expected to open up his participation with a meeting with the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley. There's also a meeting at the United Nations uh, here in New York City, where I'm standing just out front of right now, focused on the sustainable development goals. And Trudeau is also expected to speak with the Council on Foreign Relations about the importance of the critical mineral supply chain, the country's economic outlook, and Canada-U.S. relations. Trudeau is basically saying he, he wants to capitalize on what some have called a successful visit to Canada last month by uh, President Joe Biden. But again, undoubtedly, he's going to face questions about what message his presence here sends as the Liberals are set to scale back their official development assistance dollars by $1.3 billion is what that 15% adds up to. And I should mention as well, uh, it's not just the Canadian aid sector that is criticizing this trip. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev in question period yesterday also did the same, singing Frank Sinatra's New York, New York, slamming Trudeau for not staying home during the Peace Act, the Public Service Alliance of Canada strike involving more than 150,000 employees. So um, he'll be in forums and meetings and conferences, but of course also facing questions around these issues as well. Okay, and so who else is at this event then? Like, is it politicians? Is it, you know, international development Mm -hmm. groups? Like, who's there? Yeah, so this conference attracts celebrities like John Legend, Hugh Jackman, uh, other attendees are world leaders, uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron. Global Citizen is basically saying they're bringing together world leaders, corporate CEOs, philanthropists, activists, some of the biggest names in pop culture, as I mentioned, to combine major announcements on policy with what they call immediate action. They're basically saying they want to not just talk about, but actually solve some of the biggest issues on the planet over the course of these 48 hours of gatherings and forums. 
All right, Nithu, thank you. No problem. This is Mornings with Simi. There is word this morning, as we were telling you, that the first direct Canadian evacuation flight out of Sudan has now departed. So it's about 1,800 Canadians that are stuck in that country and work is being done to get them out of there. Not fast enough, some would say, but I know a lot of countries are having that issue right now. It's been almost two weeks since fighting broke out in Sudan, causing people to flee and, and all of these citizens trying to find a way out and to come back home to Canada as well. So governments from Canada to the United States and abroad. They've been struggling to get this done. How did this situation turn so quickly? Didn't anyone see this coming? So we wanted to learn more about the situation in Sudan. So this morning we have with us Tag Al-Kazin, who's a professor of African studies at Carleton University. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're most welcome. You're welcome. Now, what happened in Sudan here? Why is there suddenly so much fighting there? It is not really, it is sudden in action, but uh, the, the writing was very clear actually on the board that tension was rising. There were two parallel forces. The Sudanese army is 225,000 strong, the fourth strongest army in, uh, in Africa. And the rapid support forces were supposed to be uh, supporting them, moving rapidly. But as part of the armed forces, somehow they managed to grow uh, beyond any reasonable proportions. And they started to be a quasi uh, parallel uh, armed forces in Sudan. And as you know, this cannot happen. I mean, no, no army will accept that there is a parallel force parallel to it within the same country. And so what brought the tensions to the forefront then? Part of it is the lack of tactfulness and and knowledge by the international community. There is an an independent and uh, uh, independent person appointed by the Secretary General of the UN as an envoy to Sudan. And uh, in my own estimation, he made a lot of strategic mistakes when you have conflicts and bad governance, you work on the conflict first, and then you turn around and work on the governance. Well, he reversed the formula that anyone or one student will know. He did not tackle the conflict at all, and he started working on governance. I see this as a key issue for the flare-up. Is stability in Sudan still quite questionable there, Tag? Because that is, it's an area that has seen a lot of conflict over the last few decades, but it seemed like lately it had been quieter, hadn't it? Uh, there was a lot of fire simmering under the ashes. Uh, Sudan is a state, but is not a nation. There are 65 different ethnic groups in Sudan, many of them with their own language, with their own dances, their own tradition, their own jewelry. So this is not this is not Bangladesh, where 98% are Bengal. This is not Portugal. Uh, this is not even Egypt. So the cross-cutting commonalities that keep a nation together just do not exist in Sudan. And there is no Sudanese. Uh, there was no Sudanese identity until 1821 the invasion of Muhammad Ali Basha from Egypt. After that invasion, Sudan as an entity, as a political entity, started to come out. 
So there are some structural defaults within the country that are leading to this havoc. And do you see it settling down? I know there's a ceasefire right now. Um, is, is that going to settle down, do you think, anytime soon? Or do you fear that this is just going to escalate? It is going to escalate because while there is a lot of talk about uh, a longer ceasefire, a lot of talk about the two generals meeting, uh, this morning the army said that uh, the army and foreign affairs, they said that this is false. This is not going to happen. And the army is talking, talking about complete annihilation and complete sur- surrender uh, of the rapid uh, support forces uh, before any talks can, can actually take place. Their people have died. Their headquarters have been ransacked. The Republican palace has been destroyed. So now it is a matter of uh, military pride. And when, when you go into that area, it is very, very difficult to stop people. But there is a lot of noise, really, and uh, very little uh, product on the, uh, on, on the ground. And as we speak now, fighting is going on, aerial bombardment is going on, and this is the main tool of the army now, the aerial bombardment. They have about 120 aircraft. Most of them are being used for this bombardment. It does seem to have caught the international community off guard, though, Tag, doesn't it? Because it feels like all of these countries are now scrambling to get people out. That's correct. And let me just zero into our own government uh, uh, when I talked to uh, several senior diplomats in foreign affairs, they were in a wait-and-see mode. And people who are in wait-and-see, they don't really have a plan. They are waiting for things to happen, and then they respond. So this is really where we stood. Our ground intelligence is actually rather poor. And in a, a difficult country like Sudan, there is need for very strong ground intelligence so that people are ahead of the events. Uh, and then the, the Western countries and the, even the Middle Eastern countries realized that there was no hope in a negotiating settlement. And certainly I don't blame them. Their priority was to excavate their people. However, that had a very bad downside. People felt insecure and they had the assumption that, well, if the Western world is leaving, that means the whole country is now uh, hopeless for, for living. And then the mass exodus started. And that's certainly what we see happening now. Tag, thank you for your time this morning. Sure, you are welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the deadline to file your taxes is upon us. And this year, of course, there are some big added complications. The strike by public service workers means there are essential service levels at the Canada Revenue Agency where more than 35,000 employees are actually on the picket line. So how is this impacting people? Eric Summer is a chartered accountant and principal of ZenBooks Accounting Firm and joins us now. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Simi. Are you really seeing the effects of this? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen that uh, a third of Canadians uh, file their tax returns uh, by the end uh, in the end of April. So this is kind of game time for a lot of Canadians, and it's also game time for CRA agents and the call centers. Okay. Is it even? Can you even get a hold of somebody at the CRA if you need to <laughs> as an accountant? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, no. Uh, unfortunately, the wait times right now are three to four hours in some cases, and and a lot of Canadians especially low-income Canadians, 
don't have an accountant that they can uh, ask questions to, right? So they, they have to call the CRA uh, for questions about uh, their personal tax return, and they're just not getting a hold of any agents over there. Okay, so who do you think this is impacting the most? Like, what are you concerned about here? Yeah, it's essentially impacting low-income Canadians or seniors who who may not have uh, access to afford a knowledgeable accountant, right? Which realistically is a lot of the Canadians. They don't always have an accountant that they can ask questions to, and so they they often call the CRA. Uh, The CRA receives hundreds of thousands of calls per week this time of year, and unfortunately, they're not there to answer the call right now. So you're saying people who hire you are probably going to be okay, but it's the people who need help that aren't going to be okay. Yeah, and honestly, most most account like most Canadians don't have an accountant, and and that's those are the people that are the most impacted, and they're the ones who need the support. And when people need support, government officials need to be there to provide that. And right now, the government officials are not there to support Canadians. Okay, so what do you think needs to be done here? There needs to be an extension. So we, we've started a petition on change.org slash tax deadline, and we've seen over 30,000 signatures in the last seven days. Uh, so there's some serious momentum here, and we, we do want to grow this uh, in order to add more pressure to the agency to extend the deadline to June 15th. Uh, we understand that June 15th um, is, is, you know, 45 days uh, extension. Um, and so if, if there was an extension instead for, let's say, for every day that the strike is happening, that could also work just so that people have the time to, to get the help that they need to file their tax returns with due care. And right now, they can't do that. Yeah, are you surprised that there wasn't uh, a deadline or, or more of this kind of wasn't factored in? I was baffled, to be, to be frank. I mean, I, realistically, this is, this is like if you're in school and you have to write an exam, but the professor doesn't let you ask any questions. And, it, and if you make a mistake, you get a penalty, you know, a financial one. And people can't afford these penalties right now, um, let alone the taxes on their income. How complicated is it for you as an accountant these days? Because it certainly does feel like I know for regular folk that boy, the rules always seem to be changing when it comes to what counts, what doesn't count, you know, how much of CERB are you taking? And a lot of that's being clawed back now too, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and there's new tax credits that are being uh, put in place, right? Like there's um, in Ontario, there's a staycation credit. Uh, there, there's also, you know, the if you need to amend your prior year because you've repaid your government benefits. So a lot of people received the CERB uh, throughout the COVID pandemic and then they repaid it. But then you got to make these adjustments and filings um, to the CRA and people just don't know how to do that. Right. So they need to call the CRA and the CRA is just not there to help Canadians right now. So how has this impacted your work day? Is this like a more extra stress for you too? Yeah, so there, there's certainly, whenever we have questions, I mean, we, we don't have as many questions as the, the average Canadian, but when we do call in, we're on the phone lines. I mean, we this is our job, right? So we can we can be on the phone lines for three, four hours and try and get some other work done, but, but most Canadians don't have three to four hours to wait and just sit there and wait for the, the agents to pick up the phone. Is it going to be, do you think we're going to have to fix a lot of this afterwards too? Because if people are filing and they don't know the next year that we're going to have to make corrections, like you're talking about low-income Canadians who are, are going to suffer the most from this, right? Absolutely. And and and, and also we've seen that uh, the agency has had issues with some of the uh, the slips that are already on file. So the, the slips that the agency currently has, some of them have issues and errors, right? And then there's no way of correcting that right now. 
And so people are expected to just file, and we expect there to be a lot of adjustments after tax season based on some of these errors. And a lot of the errors that people are just making assumptions as to, you know, because they just don't know uh, how to file their tax return, so they'll just file something, and then there's going to be a lot of adjustments after tax season to reflect this. Okay, so then, Eric, what, what is your suggestion to people here? Is it get something in if you can? Yeah, I mean, the reality, you should be paying what you think you might owe, and if anything, pay just a little extra. And when you do file your tax return, you'll get a refund. And this will avoid you from getting that penalty uh, of filing late. So do what you can to file on time. And if you really can't file on time, you should just make a payment to the CRA so that you get a refund when you do file and you can avoid those penalties. Right. And if you're not one of those people, like you might not be able to do this, then you're saying sign this petition. Sign the petition. It's at change.org slash tax deadline. Yeah. All right, Eric, thanks so much. Okay, thanks so much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. When the provincial government, the NDP, were in power originally, we had a number of new schools built. It's in the last two years that we believe that the Surrey School District has been ignored as far as capital money and certainly new schools. That's a Surrey School trustee, Terry Allen, who was speaking on our show yesterday. You know, when political parties make campaign promises, it can always be a little dicey, right? They make a bunch, some get done, others don't. Some end up being very important to voters, others not as much. I think it's clear, though, that back in 2017, that provincial election campaign, the promise by the NDP to eliminate portables in Surrey schools really resonated with the community there. Problem is, as we just heard there from Terry Allen, six years later, and we have just as many portables, 361, as there were a few years ago, despite many new schools being built. The Surrey School Board has sent a letter to the Education Minister because they say not enough planning is being done for more schools. They're having to consider stacking portables on top of each other to make room for students. So what does the Education Minister have to say about that? Rakhna Singh is the Education Minister and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Simi. Thanks for having me. How do you respond to that letter from the Surrey School Board? Uh, Simi, uh, since 2017, uh, we have made education our priority. And uh, as Trustee uh, uh, Allen uh, was, I was just listening, he was saying that a lot of projects have come to Surrey. Uh, we have invested half a billion dollars in capital investments in Surrey, uh, six new schools, many expansions, and many more coming. Uh, but at the same time, we are very cognizant of the growth that is happening. Uh, more than 250,000 people moved to British Columbia in last two years. And Surrey got a big, I, w- I would say, a big chunk of that. Uh, Surrey is a great place to live. I made Surrey my home uh, more than 20 years ago. So more and more people are coming to Surrey. So there is growth, but we are working with the school district, with the Board of Education, and trying to find, like, trying to find, uh, obviously, uh, how we can uh, st- um speed up the process, uh, stop the delays, uh, and working together with the, with the school district and the Board of Education. So is this a bit of a wake-up call then, Minister? Is this, you know, ha- hearing these concerns, are you saying, okay, well, we need to do this faster? Because it sounds like the school board is frustrated that it's not being done fast enough. Uh, I wouldn't say that, uh, Simi. Uh, we had a really good conversation with the uh, with the Board of Education in February. Uh, I was there, ministry, uh, uh, ministry staff was there, 
And then also we did Surrey Summit that is done along with the city of Surrey, uh, school district and the ministry. Uh, so we were talking about the growth that is coming. So uh, last year when uh, the school district got unprecedented growth, uh, uh, it, it really surprised them. So we were sitting with them. Uh, we were all uh, sitting together working, like, what can be done? Uh, we know that this growth is going to be, uh, it, for this year also, the growth is coming, how, ke- how we can work together. That's why we have the project office in Surrey, uh, so that uh, the, there shouldn't be any delays in the projects that are uh, already working. But at the same time, having more projects, like working on more projects, uh, acquiring land, land, ac- land acquisitions, all these discussions were happening. So I, I won't say that this is suddenly uh, that we have started talking about it. We are thinking about it. We are working in, on it for a while. Okay, but is it happening now, though? Like, can how fast can we make new schools happen? Nobody wants their children to go to school in a double-stacked portable. That's what we have been doing uh, since 2017. We, we, uh, we are creating more than 10,000 seats. Uh, that means uh, more than... 400 classrooms for me. And I know how important modern safe schools are for our students. My, As a parent myself, my own children went to schools. Uh, I'm a strong proponent of public education. And, I, and that's what our commitment is as a government, that our children should be studying in safe modern schools. And that's what we are working towards. Okay, but can we make it happen like faster? Can you, can you tell the people in Surrey and, and the Surrey School Board that, okay, I hear you. We're doing this. We're going to, we're going to fix this. Yeah, uh, I, I will say this, uh, Simi, that we are working with the district and the city to make planning more efficient, reducing delays and improving work to get construction started faster to address uh, enrollment growth. Uh, we are hearing that. So we, are, uh, we will be working with them to stop the delays and uh, wherever we can do, uh, make the construction faster. Right. Is there something that you can do then in the immediate time that... So they don't have to stack a portable. I just feel like that's a picture that no political party wants to see is a double-stacked portable in Surrey. No, I would love to. Uh, uh, we, we have been in constant conversations uh, with the Board of Education, and we will be doing that again. Uh, we will be sitting th- with them in, in June uh, and look at the numbers that they have, wherever we can, uh, whatever we can do uh, to... Uh, reduce this uh, the number of portables uh, and uh, how we can support the school district. I know they are under a lot of pressure, uh, I, and and so are like many other districts in British Columbia. Uh, that because the growth definitely study is getting number of uh, new immigrants, number of new families, but so are other districts. So we are working with definitely with the Surrey school district, but other districts also how we can reduce pressure off them. Right, because it sounds to me like Surrey just continually exceeds expectations for how many students are going to show up. It seems to happen every year, doesn't it? It does, and uh, uh, and I would say that is a really good thing about Surrey. A lot of people want to make Surrey their home, and uh, which is great. Uh, we want uh, more people to come, as I did. But uh, at, at that time, I'm very cognizant. We, we at the ministry are very cognizant the pressure that the district is facing. And that's why it is our commitment to work together with them uh, to, uh, to understand their needs, their priorities, and also uh, the pressure that they're facing and how we can work together. So can you make a commitment then that you hear them and that you will try to fast track this process for them? 
I absolutely hear them. Uh, I, uh, but uh, with enrollment, uh, one thing that I would say, as the enrollment grows, uh, Simi, the funding also grows. Uh, grows. The enrollment funding grows. So the more students that they are getting, the more funding that they get. Uh, Surrey School District being one of the largest school districts gets the most funding out of the education budget. So that is a fact. But along with that, we know uh, the pressures and we will keep on working with them. Well, thank you very much, very much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That is Rakhna Singh, BC's Minister of Education, talking about the situation in Surrey, uh, pledging to work with the Surrey School District there. They clearly are raising concerns. And here's the thing. Now that this has become such a big deal, right, this idea of a double stacked portable, nobody wants to see that. And I would imagine that if you're the NDP government, if you're the minister right there, Minister Singh, the last thing you want is that picture of a double stacked portable because it will be in the next election campaign. It will, like That's just something that is going to hang over like, like an albatross around the neck of a government if, you, if that is what happens on your watch. You know what I mean? So I, if, if, hopefully that the, the concerns of the Surrey School District have been heard at this point and something will be done because I don't, no parent wants to send their child to school. A portable is bad enough. A double stack portable? I think that's a step too far for a lot of people. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com and we'll continue to talk more about that story. This is Mornings with Simi. Standing in solidarity. That's what some legendary football names are doing with the student-athletes of the varsity football program at SFU. Uh, the cancelled program, I guess I should say. In fact, a group of former Simon Fraser University football players now say they want their name removed from the university's Hall of Fame. And one of those players, legendary CFL and BC Lion player Louis Pseglia, joins us now to talk about it. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. How are did, you? I'm good, thank you. What did you think when you first heard about this cancellation? I was uh, taken aback, shocked, disheartened, disappointed. Um, um, at the time, it was uh, it was sudden, and um, and then you get all the f- supposed facts, and, and they just didn't seem to add up. Uh, to the point where, okay, all of a sudden the student-athletes and coaches are um, no longer participating in a football program that's uh, been there for 57 years at Simon Fraser. So um, whether we um, get all the answers, we'll find out. Uh, we're doing all we can to um, put the um, the student-athletes, the program, the coaches in the forefront here, and uh, hopefully something positive will come of it down the road. I think this has certainly brought a lot of people's attention to kind of the importance of athletics for so many people, for so many young people on this. It's a big deal to take your, to say, please take my name off your wall. That's, that's pretty serious. Well, we were, were, you know, all the guys that uh, decided to do this, uh, you know, even though we thought it was an honor, you know, back then to be inducted into the SFU um, Sports Hall of Fame, we wouldn't have been there without, the football program and uh, and the student athletes and coaches we played with, so we all decided to stand together and, and support the student athletes, the coaches, and the program, and do whatever we can. Uh, you know, desperate times uh, you're in need of desperate measures sometimes, and uh, hopefully this resonates up on campus and um, with the powers that be, and um, it's just a little bit that we can do 
to uh, keep this program that we love um, alive. What What was it like for you, this program? Like, what kind of a difference did it make to you in your career? Well, when I was in uh, high school at Notre Dame, um, you know, you never think of progressing to the next level until somebody tells you you got the ability to do so. And, uh, you know, you know when you're young, you're in high school, you know, if you want to go to the next level, it's university, and where do you go? Um, here locally, we were fortunate enough to have um, Simon Fraser University and, and uh, University of British Columbia, and all of a sudden, you're starting to think about uh, the next step in life of going to school, continuing your education locally amongst uh, family and friends and playing a sport that you love. And uh, that opportunity uh, brought me to um, um, this point in my life where along the way I met my wife, um, um, continued to have uh, relationships with a lot of the, of, the, of the players that I played with and and from that level of uh, football, it got me to the next level, and I was playing professional football. And uh, I can honestly say if it wasn't for football, and uh, in particular Simon Fraser, I, who knows where uh, my, uh, my life would have ended up. Uh, but uh, definitely, definitely the relationship with the, with the, the program and, and, and Simon Fraser University uh, was a big stepping stone in my life. Is that something that you have found yourself kind of talking to people about when this decision happened? Because I feel like sometimes people think, ah, oh, it's just football. It's just a game. How important is it? But th- th- I feel like people don't understand how significant this is for these young student athletes. Certainly it's a game. But uh, when you're up there and you're um, amongst, um, you know, 90, 70 to 90 guys uh, every year and um you're 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 going to school with them you're you're meeting with them you're playing football with them you're eating with them and even sometimes uh um you know living together um it's uh it broadens your horizons and it gets you closer to um um being a, a long lasting relationship with uh individuals uh, within within the uh, football program but also within the university itself. I mean, you made we made friends in in a lot of areas, and all of a sudden, uh, are these student athletes at this point in time are being, uh, you know, uh, what's the right word? Spontaneously uh, canceled off yeah. campus, basically, and uh, now at the last second, they've got to reconstruct their lives and find uh, a new avenue. Um, and uh, the question for a lot of us was was a process in getting to this point was it done properly and uh, a lot of a lot of us believe that uh, there were some missing elements to it and uh, and uh, that's where we're, that's why we're at this situ uh, this point in time uh, it's you- interesting it's interesting that uh, they decided to uh, put together a special advisor to go over everything they can to see if there is a a step forward, and you kind of wonder why wasn't this process done by the university and the administration up there back in the fall? This is why what I, I wonder. It, why right? I put it on the student athletes in April and uh, during exam time, and uh, on the way out of the university into their summer? It just didn't seem right. 
I know. It just feels like this, that should have been part of the process before this decision was made. Uh, okay, so these are the next steps. Are you hopeful with all this outcry and people talking about it and keeping this in the news? Do you hopeful that maybe something might happen here? I am hopeful, uh, only because um, it, it is still alive. It's, it's, not, it's not the end yet, and uh, until you, you, know, you still have hope, uh, I hope uh, the administration comes to its senses and, and finds a way. Um, it seems to be. It seems to, uh, that there is a, a possibility that, w- that we could play. It, we could play football. Um, you know, of course, the um, you know the NCAA Division II aspect of it is is probably closed. But there is an opportunity, possibly, to be playing in the in the U and uh, playing in Canadian football here in this country, and uh, that would give uh, an opportunity for all the kids playing football in British Columbia to have uh, another, another stepping stone in their career and uh, and not only in their career of, of, of playing a, a game they love, but an opportunity to go to, uh, continue to go to two universities in this province and play the, the sport they love. So I am hopeful and we'll see what comes of it down the road. We will. Uh, listen, thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Thanks, Simi. You, you, really, you paint a great picture of how important this program is to so many people. That's Louis Bisaglia. Yeah, that's Louis Bisaglia right there. Former BC Lions player, legend, really, and former SFU football program student. So he, along with other former SFU uh, players, Sean Millington, Glenn Jackson, Terry Bailey, Doug Brown, Dave Cutler, you get the picture here, legends, right? Are telling the school, you can take our name off of your Hall of Fame because of this football decision. When you change your mind, then you can put our name back there and let everybody know that we are you know, proud of our time at SFU. But until then, they say they really want the school to know how concerned and upset they are by this decision. So there is more to come on that, by the way. Uh, They are heading to court, I believe, for that injunction. I think May 3rd is the day that happens. So more for us to uh, talk about as well. This is Mornings with Simi. We see a lot in the news today about these rallies that are happening. They're happening in Victoria, Nanaimo, Penticton, Prince George, Surrey, Dawson Creek, like all over the province. And it's all to raise concerns about public safety. So let's find out more about this. Joining us now is Karen Cuoco, who's the vice president of the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association. Karen, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, tell me about these rallies. What's going to be happening today? Uh, It's going to be an opportunity for people to gather and express uh, their desire for public safety in their communities. Okay, in in what way then? What prompted you to help organize this? Well, it's been a long time coming. In Nanaimo, uh, we started... This trying to address this back in 2019, we had uh, two community meetings back then, one in the spring and one in the fall, uh, trying to discuss with the community and with uh, local leaders uh, how to deal with the growing suffering and violence we were seeing in our community. And then it led to uh, a rally on the courthouse steps in the fall in September, um, and then another one uh, in January, and then this one now in April, which uh, just spread to other communities because we were finding that the same problems 
obviously were going on all across the province and people in other communities were organizing themselves, feeling the same exasperation and desperation uh, that we were here in Nanaimo. Karen, what have you noticed? Like, What has changed in your community that has got you so concerned? It's the level of violence. Uh, it seems that uh, we're treating symptoms on the street level and we're living with it in our communities. And I think the change is that it is so visible, it is so prevalent, and people feel so helpless. And it's crossed the boundary. It's crossed the boundary that it's um, seeped into our schoolyards. It's seeped into our homes. And it's touching people that, you know, it has never touched before. It's like the... The, the opioid crisis went from being something that affected certain people and in certain areas, and now it's spread into our homes and into our daily lives. And people are not prepared for that, and people have boundaries about it. Enough is enough. So what do you think needs to be done here? Hmm. Well, I think we've made some good progress with municipal governments uh, understanding how to treat the symptoms uh, on the municipal level. Uh, it's causing a lot of offloading of costs to, com- to communities, to municipalities, but they're dealing with the effects of this crisis in their business operations and, and with the community. And so they have got a clearer understanding and, and many uh, municipal governments are advocating, you know, up into provincial governments and federal governments to address it. Uh, but I'm not sure that uh, upper levels of government really understand the problem and uh, they need to make changes that will address some of it. But it's, it's so complicated and it's um, intertwined with other crises. We have multiple crises going on now and it's really led to this public safety crisis. So you don't think the upper levels, like do you get the sense that there are some people in charge who are listening, who kind of get it, what's happening, that, that fear that people have? I think that they're, they are listening because it's impacting them personally and and they're feeling it in they're feeling the pressure and they're listening but I, i'm I, i'm not certain that they really understand how to solve it i i really am not certain about that there's there's so many questions why why has it gotten to this point if if government uh, upper levels of government, provincial and federal, really understand it, then why haven't they prevented it? Why is it escalating and getting worse? You know, why? There's so many questions, and I don't, I'm not convinced they understand it because we would have better results. Have things changed? Like when you walk in Nanaimo, has things changed about that? Absolutely. I mean, just uh, Monday morning, uh, two blocks from my house in, in, you know, a few blocks away from a school, a few blocks away from the entrance to our seawall, two individuals in in different areas um, laying on the sidewalk, you know, unresponsive. And people are just out for their morning walk, driving to work. And they see people just laying there. I mean, that is not normal. (laughs) And 
And of course, then citizens go into emergency mode, uh, calling for assistance to get these people help. Um, the A few days before that, another incident where um, uh, a person that was unhoused uh, collapsed on the street and they had been assaulted. You know, this is not normal stuff, mm. but it's happening within several blocks of my house and uh, all my neighbours know what to do now. Uh, I can't. I wonder though, is there enough support services then? You were saying obviously you see that, right? You go into emergency mode, you want to help out, you want to call for help. Does help arrive? Are there support services there? Um, EMS services are there and uh, they respond quickly and they care about people that are suffering in the community. That's That's their job. But uh, in terms of support services for people that are unhoused and in distress, uh, it's hard to say because a lot of people are so street entrenched, they don't want those services. Um, one of those individuals I described that was, uh, you know, unresponsive on the street, uh, they were finally woken up and, and they just wanted to lay there uh, beside the railroad road tracks. They didn't want any intervention. So, it's yeah, so what do you do? Difficult. That's such a tough one, right? Like, what do you do in a situation like well, that? Well, you have to bear witness. You have to bear witness to somebody's suffering and trauma, their their own inability to help themselves. And it's like uh, life is, there's a, a palliative public care, <laughs> a, a public palliative care ward living living itself out on our streets. And it's very traumatizing. It's not something that people expected to be witnessing. And there is trauma that goes with being a witness to these types of things, right? And and that impacts all kinds of things. People are depressed. They don't want to go outside because they're fearful. You know, other people can overcome those obstacles and, and work through them and find solutions. But not everybody's wired for that. So then, Karen, uh, today the rallies, they're happening all over the province, it sounds like. How do you expect this one to go in Nanaimo? What's going to happen? Uh, Like you want people to gather? Yeah, where is it going to be? Yeah, it's at the Diana Krall Plaza at noon. Uh, We have the great honour of having a Nanaimo First Nations elder opening our uh, rally with a uh, drum ceremony, a brief drum ceremony. Um, And then we will carry on hearing from uh, some victims and hearing from uh, people that are close to the issue. And we're going to be asking a lot of questions. We want to know why this isn't solved. It, It needs to be. It's been going on for too long. Karen, thanks so much for joining us this morning to tell us about it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Karen Kubica is the vice president of the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association. Uh, Nanaimo is one of the many areas having one of these public safety rallies today. Noon, you heard her say there at the Diana Krall Plaza in Nanaimo, but it's also Victoria at the legislature, Penticton, Prince George, Surrey, Dawson Creek, you name it. There's a bunch of these going on. I know there's going to be a lot of coverage of these today, but I think you get the sense of the frustration that people have, you have, about what you see happening in your community.